Well, good morning. Uh, firstly, thank you very much for uh, having me here this morning. It's uh, always a pleasure to go and preach elsewhere and to uh, join with my brothers and sisters there and to, uh, to meet them, to have fellowship with them. So thank you. Uh, thank you also very much uh, as a plan who, who did the reading. I always feel bad when I go to uh, other churches and if I pick this reading, it seems like a very odd reading to pick uh, for, a, for a one-off sermon. Um, and it is tricky and I'm always thinking when I'm not that, the one who has to, to read it as well. Um, but I do believe it, it, it is part of God's word, isn't it? And it's often that part of the Bible which we see a, a whole list of names and we think, you know, I kind of get the gist. Uh, and you, you skip on, you know, in your uh, reading through the Bible in a year or three years, whatever it is. Uh, and we go on to the next more interesting passage. But it's given to us by God. Uh, so that we might uh, be encouraged by it. And I hope you will be encouraged if you have the passage there open in front of you. We will uh, go to lots of other passages uh, in the uh, Old Testament especially. Don't feel you have to go to each and every single one. I'll read them out as we go through. Uh, But we'll see, hopefully, what this passage has to say to us this morning. Uh, But to to start, I want to ask a question. How do you introduce yourself? Now, I don't uh, just mean uh, what do you call yourself, you might have a nickname or something like that, but not that. How uh, do you introduce yourself? How do you try to convey who you really are when you first meet someone? Now, I assume that when you do that, when you meet someone new, you don't uh, usually uh, start with a a long list of names with your your genealogy like we have in passage. Today, that's not common. But I've been told that when we do try to convey who we are, we generally uh, introduce ourselves differently depending on whether we're men or women. I say this generally, uh, and this is simply what I've heard. Now, what I've been uh, told is that women uh, are generally, generally more relational when they introduce themselves. So they'll tell people who they're connected to in some way. You know, who their parents were, or their husbands, or their children, or their friends. Uh, And it's hoped that that will get across something uh, of where they're from and what their, their world is like, who they are. But men generally are said to be different. When we introduce ourselves, we'll try to get across who we are by saying what we do. Whether that's our job during the week, or, or what we do here in church, uh, or even what we do in our free time, our hobbies or sports. That's meant to convey who we are by showing what we're about in life. And what our passions are. Now that, uh, for me at least, doesn't always particularly go down very well. Obviously I I work uh, in a church. And I've worked in uh, churches for uh, a number of years now. And I've had a variety of reactions when someone asks me what I do. And I tell them I've I've had all different sorts of reactions. Some uh, have very politely asked me what what that's about, what that's like. And that's always uh, really pleasant. Uh, some changed the subject. Uh, I've had one who, when I told them, they nodded and then immediately turned around to uh, uh, speak to someone else so they could get out of continuing to talk about that. That was a very awkward uh, wedding reception. Uh, and once, uh, a few years ago, uh, I bumped into someone I went to primary school with. And we spoke pleasantly for a while, catching up, and I asked her what she was up to now, and she told me. And then she did the same. She asked what I did. And as soon as she heard that I worked for a church, she exploded. Not literally, but uh, she exploded emotionally. She was very anti-Christian. She said she was uh, uh, a hardcore atheist, I think, is, was her term for herself. 
Uh, and I ended up having what was unfortunately uh, an argument for a good 30 to 45 minutes. She insulted me, she hated me, because my introduction, uh, what I told her that what I do, uh, told her enough about me as a person, she felt. She knew what I was about, uh, and she hated it. And so that's just a, uh, to get us thinking about our introductions, because introductions are important, aren't they? And here in Matthew's Gospel, here we have Jesus' introduction to us. Of course, Matthew is introducing him. He's the one who wrote this Gospel down. But Matthew is writing Scripture, isn't he? And so this is part of God's Word. This is not simply Matthew speaking. This is God's self-revelation. And so really, in a sense, it is Christ introducing himself to us this morning. And in his introduction... He is telling us something about himself. And he does it in both ways that we've thought about already. He does it relationally and through what he does. In fact, it's partly through telling us about his relations, about his relatives, that he tells us what he is about and what he came to do. And so as we go through, we, you'll probably be thankful to, to, to know that we won't go through each and every person specifically. Uh, we won't be able to talk about every issue that's raised from this passage. But I hope that as we go through, we'll see one thing. And that's that the Redeemer, our Redeemer, has come. And that hopefully as we see that truth, that we would rejoice in him. So let's work our way through this passage. It, it starts, doesn't it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here we see lots of different things. Immediately we're given this wealth of information about Jesus. Of course we're given his name, aren't we? His title. And we also see uh, what looks like his pedigree. Uh, as we would see in the next passage, I'm sure uh, we had it read at some point over the Christmas uh, season where uh, we see that birth narrative. We, we see what his name is like. Uh, what, what his name means, don't we? He's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so, right in this first section, we see that he is a saviour. Of course, really, many people had that name at that time. You may uh, be aware that Jesus was a, a common uh, variant of the name Joshua, which does mean to rescue, deliver, or save. As an introduction, we we need more than, than just that name, not just that uh, he, his name means that he saves. Which Jesus, which saviour is he? Well, again, we continue in this verse, we see that he is Jesus Christ, or what we could say is Jesus the Christ. Because, again, as many of you will likely know already, Christ is, is not uh, Jesus' surname like Jonathan Cannon. Uh, that's not how it works. It's it's a title that he was given, that he has. Jesus the Christ. Christ is pretty much the same as the term Messiah. And it means anointed one. As we go through scripture, we see that many people in scripture were anointed before Jesus. They were anointed in some way, given the title of Messiah, as it were. You had priests and kings, they were anointed. And even the Persian king, Cyrus, was called Messiah. And so it was linked 
uh, with uh, saviors or, or liberators, especially with Cyrus there, uh, saviors and liberators of God's people. But by the time Jesus appeared on the scene, uh, the title had certain expectations with it. There's lots of prophecies uh, uh, about this. There are all these promises and prophecies linked with not just a Messiah that would come, but with one who would come. Who would finally liberate God's people and rule as their king. This person wouldn't just be a Messiah, a Christ, but would be the Christ. The one who all those promises pointed to. So in this very short introduction here, we see that Jesus is the Christ, the one they had waited for. Like I said, we've, we've got a short introduction here and there's a wealth of information. And so he goes on. We're told that not only is Jesus the Christ, but we're told that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And when I first studied this passage, I, I thought, that's very peculiar, isn't it? Why are these two names mentioned here? David and Abraham. Because as you can tell, as we just had read, there's a genealogy that follows straight after this introduction, isn't there? And these two names come up in, in, in that genealogy. And so, why doesn't Matthew simply say, this is Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, and then have the list of names, and there you would find Abraham and you would find David. But instead, they're mentioned separately, again, at the beginning. And that's because he's telling us a lot more about Jesus than simply that he is one of their descendants. You see, in Scripture, the son, uh, the, the term son of, had, had a far greater meaning than simply um, uh, biology. Simply that someone was a biological descendant of someone else, though it could, of course, mean that. It could mean, instead, far more than that. It could mean that the person embodies some important aspect uh, of the other so, for example, you can have all sorts of phrases, which is very interesting to see. We don't have it in the English language now, but they, they had it back then. So, for example, someone could be called a son of malice. Uh, we don't really use the word malice very much anymore either, uh, but you might be able to tell that it's not a particularly nice word. And so if you call someone a son of malice, they're a wicked person, that's what you mean. They could be called son of murder. Now, again, we do use the word murder, you can probably guess what that means, it means that they are a murderer. That's how you describe them. Or, you can have a positive one thrown in there as well, because that's always nice. Uh, they could be called son of encouragement. That means that when you see that person, you know that that person is an encourager. You call them, you describe them that way, by calling them a son of encouragement. And so we can see that uh, in God's word, that, that term son of, is not always to do with biology. Instead, when you see this person, they embody that ideal. And I think that's what's going on here in this introduction of Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel. There is something about Jesus that links him to David and Abraham in more ways than simply biology. In some way, he embodies the ideals of both of them who went before. And I believe it has a lot to do with the promises that are tied up with both of them. David and Abraham both had promises made to them or about them. And Jesus is the one who fulfills them all. So firstly we'll look at these two people. 
more about David, but uh, a little bit about Abraham as well. So firstly, we, we see David, don't we? Now, when we look back uh, at King David in the Old Testament, we see that he points to Christ in, in so many ways. He, he is a type or a figure uh, of the Christ to come, both in the who he was and the promises made to him. And so when you think of David, of course, you think of him first as the king, don't you? The archetypal king. Uh, that's what he's called later in this genealogy. It's, it's worded very well. You have, you have other kings, don't you? You have Solomon and you have Rehoboam and Abijah mentioned. They're all kings as well. But David, when you go through the, the genealogy, David is the one who is called the king. Very specific. Because he was the, the greatest king that they ever knew. He was God's king, wasn't he? He was God's choice, if we remember the story of David. The king before him, King Saul, uh, was the kind of king that the people wanted, that the people liked. Uh, But he didn't have the right heart, he failed. But then David comes along and he's the king that that God picked. Uh, A man after God's own heart who led God's people as God wanted. And so David was the good king. And we know he messed up, and we'll see that uh, a little bit later. But he sets up this idea of good kingship, of God's kingship. So Jesus is, is linked with him, and he's the fulfillment of that idea. But it's, not, it's not just who David was, but his promises made to him as well. There are concrete promises made about him uh, and about kingship. And this is one of the passages that we're going to go to, and like I say, you don't uh, have to go to it, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, we read this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as we read through that, we might think, well, you know, that, that's already been fulfilled. In some sense, at least, that was fulfilled in part by David's son, Solomon. He was a king. He sat on David's throne. He did build a house for, for God. He built the temple. He was, of course, in mind when this promise was given, in part, I'm sure. But as we see this promise, you can see that it's almost too grand, isn't it, for uh, someone like Solomon to fulfill. Ultimately, it points to a king who will reign just for a short time, like Solomon did that, forever, over an everlasting kingdom. And so it does point to Solomon, but it also points past Solomon, through Solomon, to someone who would come afterwards, to the Christ, who they were waiting for. So this grand promise of a coming king, of the line of David, comes up uh, later in the prophecy of Isaiah as well. We get uh, uh, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, and, and again, you probably had this uh, read fairly recently over the Christmas period. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so this child born will sit on David's throne. He will be a king and he will rule forever. But it's no merely human king who will do that. 
Solomon can hold the titles that this king will hold. He'll be called Mighty God. That can't be said of Solomon. And it goes on in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, uh, we read uh, about the bad shepherds who had led God's people uh, astray in many uh, different ways, uh, hadn't been looking after God's sheep, his people. Uh, and God says that he himself will come and rescue them, gather them and bring them to good lands and look after them. And he'll set a shepherd over them. And in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, it says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So that was written long after David. Though he was the king, though these promises were made about him, it's written long after he was dead. But it points to a Davidic king, a good shepherd king. And so when Matthew introduces Jesus the Christ as the son of David, all of these promises would be in mind. Similarly with, with Abraham, we have promises made and we won't go through uh, many passages like we did with David. Um, but God was gracious to him, wasn't he? With Abraham, he made a covenant with him. He promised him a good land and safety and blessing and descendants. But one part of the promise to Abraham sticks out uh, to me when I, I think about Jesus Christ. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God says to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so this points again to partial fulfilment in Abraham's descendants, Israel. They were meant to bless the nations. They were meant to take the knowledge of God out to them, to demonstrate what a joy it was to serve the Lord. But if you go through your Old Testament, you see that time and time again, they failed to do that. Rather than being a blessing to the nations, they were instead very often tainted by them. And followed other gods. And so it can't just point to them, can it? They weren't the blessing that they should have been. And when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul looks at this verse and he says, ultimately that's not Israel that points to Christ. He is the offspring of Abraham who will bless the nations. And so, with this short verse at the beginning, we see that by saying that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's saying that Jesus is the perfect, promised, eternal shepherd king who will bless all the nations. Now we go through that and it's, it, can, it can seem a bit laborious, fun it, to, to look at this verse and that verse, but it's good incentive for us, isn't it, to, to learn our Old Testament better. Matthew's first readers probably knew it incredibly well. For them it, it would be like... Um, when a, when a friend of yours has met someone really great, this really great person, perhaps uh, they've started to, to date them or something like that, and they, they come to you and they tell you all about them, you know, what their character is like, what their passions are, how wonderful this person is. When they finally bring them along to you and, and introduce you to them, and they say, you know, oh, this is the person that I was telling you about, you already feel like you know them in part, don't you? All that knowledge uh, that you've already been given simply, it, it simply takes on flesh. It simply has a voice. It, it, it has a face. And that's what we've got here at the beginning of the New Testament. There's the whole of the Old Testament pointing forward to this great saviour king. 
what he will do, who he will be. Uh, and now Matthew, as a very opening part, is, is saying, finally he's here. He's here, the king is here, the redeemer is here. All those promises have taken on flesh, just as we were thinking with the word incarnation, taken on flesh. And so all, all those promises, they're not just promises for the future. Now there is one who can be talked to, who can be listened to, who can be followed. And, and so far from being a, a boring Stuffy introduction, which when we read this we can think it can be. I said this is, this is a glorious introduction to the most glorious person who can be introduced. Well, I've spoken for, there's not a clock here, but I'm assuming around 15 minutes if my notes are correct. And I've only covered one verse. Um, and we haven't even got to the genealogy yet, have we? But don't worry, like I said at the beginning, we won't go through each and every name now. I'll go through some of them and we'll try to draw out the significance of why we have this, this great opening introduction in one verse and then we have this long list of names. So firstly, let's think about, uh, as we go through, we see that there are some really great men who are mentioned in this genealogy. Great men, aren't they? We have people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have these great patriarchs who are so important throughout Scripture, not least because of the promises made to them, like we we saw with Abraham. We have other great men. We have people like the great and wise Solomon. He was fantastic as well, wasn't he? And, and more kings after him, very important. And they seem so great, they seem so grand. And we can think, well, no wonder. No wonder Jesus would want them in his genealogy. But when we look at the stories of each of them, the picture looks quite different, don't we? When we look, when we look a little bit closer, and so we see someone like the great Abraham. Uh, and we know that he was a great man of faith. We don't want to insult him or, or, or put him down, but, but he was a great man of faith. He had plenty of moments of weakness, didn't he? He would often get scared by powerful men, by other kings, uh, and allow them to take his wife as their own because she was beautiful, claiming that she was only his sister. And when it took so long... For God's promise of a son to be fulfilled, he, in a way, took things into his own hands. He had a son by Sarah's servant, Hagar. So, you know, not, not as great as sometimes we think. Jacob, well, he was a bit of a deceiver. That's always interesting going through your Bible readings and, and looking at him. Solomon, uh, for all his wisdom, ended up being led astray by all of the pagan wives that he wasn't meant to have, uh, according to God's word, uh, and ended up leaving... Uh, the country in the hands of his not fantastic son who left the country in a bit of a mess. And the other kings, well, reading about them isn't a great bedtime reading either. Uh, there are a few okay kings who think, ah, oh, that's great, but that's very short-lived. And then there are other kings who are simply awful. So Manasseh, for example, was incredibly wicked. He eventually repented, but during his reign, he drove Judah to worship idols, he sacrificed his own son to a false god by burning him alive. Like I said, not particularly pleasant. And it was said of him that he shed so much innocent blood that the blood filled Jerusalem from end to end. They're not really as great as they seem. They might have been grand, they might have been wealthy and powerful, but they were not really that great. The kings ultimately lead the people astray until the whole nation is taken off into exile. 
as a punishment for their sin. And even when they return, the people in Jesus' line become less and less prominent, less and less powerful. But some important names, but, but once you get to Joseph at the end, well, he was just a carpenter, wasn't he? And so we get these great men who are not really so great after all. And then you get women as well, don't you? You get women mentioned in this genealogy. Now that's very unusual in ancient genealogies. Usually uh, you just mention the men. Now that's not my fault, so don't blame me, but you know, that's, that's unusual in ancient genealogies. But here we have them. And usually if women were mentioned in ancient genealogies, you, you would pick particular women. Those who were crucial to the point that you wanted to make. And so usually you would include those women who had done something absolutely fantastic, absolutely wonderful. And so people would be able to look through your pedigree and think, oh, this person must be fantastic if they're, they're the offspring of that woman. So who do we have here? We've got women mentioned. Who do we have? Firstly, Tamar, who dressed like a prostitute in order uh, to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Uh, and I'm not putting all the blame on her, don't worry. Judah didn't care for her like he was meant to and then slept with someone that he thought was a prostitute. So, you know, again, not great. We have Rahab. Uh, and though she did uh, great things for helping the Israelites, she too was a prostitute, not something you would usually want to write home about. You have Ruth. Well, she seems okay in most ways. We like Ruth. Apart from the fact that she was a Moabitess. Now, all of the women mentioned uh, in this genealogy, apart from Mary, are Gentiles. They are non-Jews. They are non-Israelites, originally outside of the people of God. And so it's odd having them mentioned at all in the first place. But Moabites, they weren't just Gentiles. They were cursed people. And yet here she is. Here is Ruth, mentioned in this genealogy. So those are... All of the women, except for one. I've missed one so far. And she's really easy to miss in the genealogy, isn't she? Because her name doesn't actually appear. I wonder if you've spotted her. Bathsheba. Again, she was probably a Gentile because she was originally married to a Hittite. And you usually didn't have that uh, intermarriage, although you get that with Solomon. But we can probably assume that she was a Hittite as well. But that is not the most striking thing about her in this genealogy. What really stands out is that her name isn't mentioned at all. Only the sin that she was a part of. Did you spot that? That's the focus, isn't it? In verse 6 we have this high point of the whole genealogy. And then a cliff drop straight after it. And so we have David the king. That's the high point, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by another man's wife. The great king took another man's wife and then, as we know uh, from the Old Testament, he had him killed to try and cover his tracks. The only woman mentioned that wasn't involved in, in some great sin or from some cursed people was Mary. But as we find from the New Testament, she herself recognises that she was a sinner in need of a saviour. She wasn't perfect She's just another woman, another sinner in this line. And so this, this is Jesus' line, isn't it? This is his family tree. And, and when we look at it, it's, it's not a great family tree. It's a bit of a rotten tree, really, isn't it? 
There are quite a few genealogies. I don't know if you've ever tried to trace your own uh, your own ancestry. There, there are a lot of genealogy and ancestry websites around where you can, can trace that through. But I found that some of those websites actually warn you beforehand that doing so, trying to track your lineage, might be traumatic. You might find out that your great-grandfather was a murderer. You might find out that your great-great-grandmother was a serial adulterer. Uh, and so your genealogy past her is it, quite uncertain. They, they warn you, because finding these things out can cause embarrassment. You can't choose your ancestry, can, can you? But you, you might want to hide it. You might want to not know about it. But that's not the case with Jesus. See, J- Jesus chose his ancestry. He could choose his ancestry, couldn't he? He, as God, wasn't wasn't simply stuck with his right lot and ended up in the world. No, he willingly had these people in his line. And not only that, but he, he didn't hide it. He had it written down by Matthew through the power of his spirit. Uh, and not only has he uh, chosen that line, not only has he had it written down, but he's had it preserved for us to read 2,000 years later at the start of the New Testament. Why on earth would he do something like that? Well, I believe that it's here to show that not only is Jesus that promised king that we saw at the beginning, not only is he the promised saviour, but he's the promised redeemer for people like this. For sinners. So he doesn't come along and create this pristine family tree, a perfect people to be able to enter into his creation through so that he could be born in splendour and rule the other wretches with an iron fist. Instead, what we see here is that he sat down very willingly into the muck and the mire, into the mess of human life. He chose to associate with, in some instances, what looks like the worst of humanity. Jesus chose and, and shows us his relations to tell us what he's about. He's about blessing people in all nations. About redeeming people, whether they be women or whether they be men. Great or small, strong or weak. Those who appear to have life all nice and neat and all together and those who are very obviously broken. It's hard for us to accept that such divine royalty would choose to associate with sinners and so he doesn't just say it does he he doesn't just come and give promises he demonstrated it even before he entered the world he demonstrated that this is what he was about and we know that this is not just some good intention that he had that he wanted to associate with sinners that he wanted to save sinners but was somehow unable to achieve it no he succeeded in redeeming sinners this shepherd king that we see at the beginning, at the introduction of Matthew's gospel, is the same king that 27 chapters later is nailed to a cross and dies. And bearing the guilt of those wretched sinners who put their trust in him, whether they came before him, or whether they were those who had been walking with him, or who turned to him now, he paid for their sins. And as we die, uh, as he died, We read this 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Christ, at that point, dealt with sin. He tore apart that barrier that kept sinners from a holy God. And he made a way for them to be with him. And then, on the third day, whilst other tombs had cracked open and the dead had been raised, on the third day, his tomb was empty. And Christ was the risen king that we had been promised, a victorious over sin and death, never to die again. And so that, that is who we are introduced to in this opening chapter in Matthew. But now we have to ask, how are we going to respond to him this morning? Are we going to ignore him? Are we going to reject him? Or are we going to turn to him and rejoice in him? Perhaps this morning you do not yet trust in Christ. My prayer this morning is that you would turn to him and follow him as your redeemer and king. Know that your sin, there is no sin too powerful for him to deal with. That is what he has demonstrated here. There is no sin too great to stop you from being able to come to him. He will not keep you at arm's length as if you're, you're dirty and something to be despised. He will not turn you away. He came to redeem people just like you and just like me. So my prayer is that today you would see him, that you would rejoice in him and trust in him. But if you do know Christ today, then I want to encourage you with this passage. Though it often seems like a boring passage, I want to encourage you with it. Encourage you to rejoice in the knowledge that Christ has come. And when your love for him starts to, to, to fade, as it often does, delve back into God's word and see how magnificent this person is. How all of history is centred on him. How God has, all throughout the ages, been pointing to the coming of the great redeeming king. And rejoice that he has now come. And so my prayer would be that you would let that truth stir up your joy. He is the king that we follow. And what a privilege that is. And if at times you, you doubt that you can still follow him, if the, the guilt of sins committed still haunts you and torments you, as it often does me, then look again at his word. Know that he has come to redeem sins far greater than you. That he succeeded in dealing with your sin. And know that you are redeemed. And lastly, lastly, as we go out from this place, who are we going to tell this good news to who are we going to introduce to Christ? We have an introduction here. Who are we going to introduce to Christ? Surely it should be all. Whether they're Muslims or atheists or lovely cultural Christians. Whether they're drug addicts or police officers. Whether they're murderers or doctors. We have a saviour who has come to redeem them all. As the Gospel of Matthew closes, Jesus the risen king says this to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That is the task that our Redeemer King has set for us. But don't worry, the final words of Christ in this Gospel are, and behold, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that there we see Christ. We are introduced to him. And there we're not simply introduced to uh, his glory and his holiness and his magnificence, but we are introduced to the fact that he has come to save sinners. He associates with people like us so that he might redeem us, so that he might lead us. We thank you for that great truth and we pray that this morning that you would uh, work that truth deep into our hearts. Because Lord, we recognise that we continue to sin. We continue to, to, to drift from you. And it can be difficult to be convinced that we can uh, find our way back, that you would accept us back. So Lord, work this truth deep into our hearts so that we might always turn to you and trust in you. And knowing that we are accepted by you, that we might rejoice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.